Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This day, July 10, our panellists will pull apart the hints and rumours of proposed new laws on religious freedom, look at the marginal arguments for and against the tax cut package, and then we try and figure out why Donald Trump so badly wants to go to the moon by 2024. Well, not him personally, but someone from NASA most likely. As always, we close with our Books and Culture segment. Today, the mandatory streaming series is The Terror. The film is Yesterday, about the Beatles. The lecture is on the French Revolution. And the epic poem is Dante's Inferno. So we've got something for everyone there. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr. Chris Berg. Thank you very much, Scott. Also with us in the IPA studio is research fellow Kurt Wallace. Thank you, Scott. And rounding out the panel, IPA Legal Fellow and also from RMIT University, academic Aaron Lane. It is a pleasure as always. It's great to have you back. And uh, not just an academic, but I understand a nominee for Academic of the Year. Uh, Yes, the Lawyers (laughs) Weekly, uh, uh, very prestigious uh, award. Um, So nice to be shortlisted. Circulation of about... 20, probably, you and your mates. Oh, come on. Yeah, know, let's let's be more positive than that. No, 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 well done. This is, a, this is a happy podcast. No, no, good, good, luck, good <laughs> luck in the finals. Good luck in the finals. Thank you. <laughs> Do not forget the Looking Forward podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate. Now, as I mentioned, there are rumours and hints of legislation being prepared by the Federal Attorney General to protect our religious freedoms, not just for Israel Folau, but for all of us. That's right, Scott. So the government is going ahead, it looks like, with a Religious Freedom um, Act or amendment, um, something to protect religious freedmen in the um, wake of the Israel Folau discussion and debate. There are two models on the table, as far as we're aware. There's a group of conservative MPs and senators is proposing a much, a, a very large religious freedom act that would res- do things like exempt religious beliefs from employment contracts. The government has largely rejected that idea. And there, um, the Christian Porter, the Attorney General, it seems to suggest is suggesting that he's going to um, prohibit what's called indirect discrimination on the grounds of religion um, in employment circumstances. So what that means is um, we've got in, uh, prohibitions on indirect discrimination at the moment in the Sex Discrimination Act, and and indirect discrimination is when um, something occurs that uh, indirectly discriminates against you. So if a policy says that you must work full-time, that might potentially discriminate against a, a, a mother who only needs to work part-time or only can work part-time. And indirect discrimination in the case of religious freedom might be something like you have to work on um, a, a, a religious holiday or you have to work on a Saturday or a Sunday that is prohibited by your religion. So that that seems to be what they're going ahead with. That's what Christian Porter has been talking about in the last couple of days. I think there's a lot to unpack here. But the first one and the point that I think is worth discussing, I don't think this would do anything, anything at all to tackle what happened with Israel Falau, because that's not indirect discrimination. That's a contract law case. Wouldn't you say, Aaron? Or yeah, I, I have. Um, I mean, I have some sympathy for this argument um, that it's a, a contract law dispute. Although I must admit that I'm deeply uncomfortable um, by the idea that employers can enforce on their employees. Um, uh, standards uh, of conduct and sort of regulate their conduct out of hours and in matters that bear no relationship on uh, the employment contract at all. Um, and so, um, you know, the Israel Folau case is obviously um, in the media at the moment and um, there's been a lot of discussion about that case um, and, uh, you know, listeners would know that that case is about uh, a, a rugby player uh, using a social media account. Now, um, I think we uh, would say that we'd pay rugby players. If you're a Rugby Australia, surely you pay rugby players to play rugby, <laughs> not to uh, post on their social media accounts. And um, I would have, I would have thought that um, there, there bears little nexus between those two things. Now, I must admit, I don't have a lot of sympathy. Uh, in this case because of the quantum 
of Israel Flower's remuneration. You know, he's earning million dollar contracts uh, and, um, you know, is handsomely compensated for those sort of extra things that get, um, you know, that might get regulated after working hours. Um, and uh, he's obviously going to gain a big following as part of his. Um, you know, part of his role as a, as a famous rugby player. What I'm more uncomfortable about is for the cases where, you know, it's the average worker and the average worker does not get compensated um, for an employer's ability to scrutinise uh, their political activities, uh, their, um, uh, you know, other uh, private activities, their religious activities on their own personal time. And I'm deeply uncomfortable that we seem to have gone down a path in Australia where um, employers are seeking to regulate um, all manner of aspects um, and, and they hide these things in their employment policies but they're not bound by their own policies and the employers can choose when they want to enforce them or not and the employers choose when uh, they want them to apply to themselves or not. And so I'm deeply uncomfortable by those things Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that this religious freedom bill in one shape or another is going to address that task. What, what's your what's your view, Kurt? Because it sort of strikes me that that I, I, I share a lot of um, that view myself, Aaron. But I'm deeply uncomfortable with taking what is a cultural criticism about what corporate Australia might be doing and turning it or trying to make it into legislation. Well, I think that's the the core issue. I think it fundamentally is a, a cultural problem. I think it's concerning um, that uh, we we think that it's appropriate that. There are, you know, Rugby Australia thinks it's appropriate to sack someone for, for quoting the Bible. And I think that really is just a reflection of, of the cultural trends and um, what people think is um, appropriate for someone to express in the public domain. But I'm really concerned about this legislation that, one, it's not going to be effective in, um, because it's not going to stop employers from uh, discriminating against people of religious belief. Like, they can just say, um, you know, go for your resume and say, oh... Um, you, know, you have some connection that you know, gives away that you're you know, a fundamentalist Christian or something and they might just you know, not employ you because they know that they can't um, have any recourse if you, you know, damage their brand from their perspective. So I think that's, a, that's an issue where these laws won't actually you know, end that discrimination. But it also could go um, one step further in actually causing damage in um, restricting... Um, yeah, what people can actually say. So we haven't actually been given the details of what this legislation is. But from like a Christian perspective, I think that Christians should be um, concerned about anything that, um, you know, legislates for what you can say about uh, religions. So um, Christianity like, is an exclusivist religion. It's saying that, you know, Jesus is the, the mediator between God and man and it contradicts other religions. So... When we start going down this this road of uh, religious um, discrimination, I think that it's bad because it it stops uh, religious belief being expressed. So um, I think there's a number of concerns, and at the moment the legislation is very vague and we're not sure what's in it. I think that's one of the problems we're trying to have a debate uh, in this country without any you know, transparency of what what is being planned. Well, that's partly because um, there have been secret briefings about this. So um, uh, they've been talking to a number of religious I'm, groups. I'm very disappointed in the backbench for not leaking us a draft <laughs> of, of the bill to be surreptitiously taking photos of the presentation. I would have thought it was the least they could do for freedom-loving peoples. But I think, I think Kurt raises a good point. And, and whether or not it's in the legislation, as you said, Chris, there is a, an alternative approach being pushed by um, uh, Ferravanti Wells and other conservatives barnaby joyce as well and and barnaby joyce and uh to kurt's point once once you start protecting a particular religious belief which almost by definition most of them are exclusivist um in one form or another um later on i'll be talking about dante's inferno which is a a famous uh, book which involves a description of of hell and the structure of hell and who's in it and it, it occurred to me that uh in the circle of hell uh, that's reserved for heretics. Uh, as Dante, who is a character in his own book, is wandering along, there he sees the great prophet of Islam, uh, along with all the other heretics. And so as I was flicking through it again this morning, it occurred to me 
that Israel Folau only talked, you know, quoted the New Testament and only talked about certain categories of thieves, adulterers, lies, so on, and um, uh, including uh, gay people. And uh, so he's under threat for that. But if there was a Protection of Religious Freedom Act, which also amounted to protection from religious vilification, then you could conceivably have a scenario in which you've quoted Dante's description of hell... <laughs> And that the prophet of Islam is in that hell. Yes. And you would be using as a defense religious freedom at exactly the same time as you would be being prosecuted for having defamed a particular religion. For those who are calling for um, religion as a category to be added to that of race in 18C, which is a, which is a very real push from some. Uh, so these are the sort of absurdities that come out if you if you have a knee-jerk approach to trying to change the law. And and that risk that, that both you and, um, and Kurt have raised, Scott, are not hypotheticals. You know, in Victoria, under the, uh, I, I forget the exact name of the Act, but I think it's the, the Racial and Religious Tolerance Act, I think, um, then there is a provision under that Act um, to do similar things that we're talking about here with this federal law. Now, um, that law has been used in Victoria against a Christian pastor uh, who was making critical remarks of Islam. And so um, I think the, the you know it's particularly the this is particularly coming from the Christian community at the moment in this current debate. I think they need to be very careful that any laws are not used as swords against themselves. And it also raises the problem of defining what religion is. So, um, am I allowed to say that? Would I be allowed to criticise Islam and have the defence of well, this is part of my Christian belief. This is me expressing my religiously held conviction as opposed to someone who's, who's an atheist criticising Islam and not having that, that thing to fall back on. Yeah, this is right. And so what, what we're, the reason that we support liberal tolerance in the space of religious belief is precisely so that we're not litigating these questions about deep-seated fundamental beliefs that cannot be reconciled with each other. So, um, as as you've pointed out, Kurt, this is uh, religions tend to be exclusivist religions. Certainly, monotheistic religions are exclusivist. So you can only hold one, and re- you have to reject others by doing so. And if we're going to involve the courts in that dispute, that's asking for just just a world of litigation and oh. just the wide open space. Yeah, and I, I think there's something lost in this debate often is the conflation between of, uh, of two things. One is freedom of religion, but the other is freedom of worship. Now, freedom of religion is often reduced to merely freedom of worship. And this goes to your point, Kurt which is that people are talking about, oh, well, is it religious or not? Well, we're going to have regard to what context it was in. And, okay, if you've said that in a church uh, on a Sunday uh, at 11 o'clock, then we're going to count that as freedom of religion. Um, But if you step outside the sanctuary, uh, well, no, that's not freedom of religion. Um, And it's this idea that somehow when you leave the place of worship, that somehow you shed all of that um, that belief um, that you might have, and it's a uh, it's a it's a fascinating thing, and it tends to come from people of, of no belief, and that and that can't understand that. But um, I think too often um, we reduce that down to merely freedom of worship, um, and that would be a, a a very sort of bad place to go. It's also it's also um, religious belief is a poor ground on which to stand for freedom of speech, and and. Uh, uh, there's uh, John Roskam's been uh, giving uh, some excellent interviews lately where he's been making this point. It would be a poor sort of law in which the only protection you had for certain kinds of speech was to say that you had religious belief and the idea that that could be tested in a court. I mean, many, like what if you're an Anglican and, you know, many Anglicans don't actually, they like being Anglicans but don't believe in God. <laughs> it's a compromise that they established a few hundred years ago and is it that, seems to work pretty well. Is that the podcast well. position? <laughs> it may well be. Yes, yeah, so what do they call it? Cultural Christianity. But here's the point. What if someone had have said all of those things that Israel Folau said, just, and perhaps even more offensively, but they were complete, completely secular? They were merely prejudiced. And... Um, uh, now, obviously, they couldn't say you're going to burn in hell, but you know, some imagine some equivalent 
curse that one might make, uh, even though one is is not uh, an adherent to any particular religion. Does that mean you therefore have no protections against uh, being pursued by the aggrieved party and or a human rights commission? That's that's where this could go. So this has gotten sort of very wonkish in, in a very short space of time. So we started with the Israel Folau um, uh, uh, issue, which was which is a cultural criticism of Australian corporate environment, and suddenly it's turned into a discussion about specific legislation. And I, I, I'll, I'll ask you in a sec, Aaron, is there a way through this from a legal perspective? But what is interesting as a phenomena that we're now seeing, as the culture wars become more important, it's starting to show the same dynamics as every other area of the regulatory state. So something bad happens in the world, the response is there ought to be a law. The government responds with, here's a law, it doesn't specifically tackle what you said it will, but at least we've given you a law. And if the government comes out with a religious freedom act, it will be a culture wars version of there just ought to be a law. Um, But now we're pulling the culture wars into legal territory, into the territory of lawyers and judges and arbitrators and contracts and that's a real concern but is, is there something that we can do Aaron is there a is is, is there an alternative approach or yeah I, I absolutely agree it's a concern because essentially what you have um, when you start layering on uh, you know discrimination law on top of discrimination law and then you have all these exceptions essentially what it does is is flip who gets to decide the test so um, at the moment under a, a lot of anti-discrimination law um, with the exceptions that apply uh, it might be say um, uh, if, if we're talking about hiring employees religious organizations for example want to hire someone um, that shares their ethos political organizations might want to hire someone that shares their um, their views we leave it up at the moment to uh, the employers to decide that uh, whether how much that matters to them. What um, I think layering laws on top of laws would do is was make it so that the tribunal gets to decide that fact. What I would like to see happen is actually that the the employment contract um, gets somewhat narrowed. Um, the, the IPA um, in previous research on you know things like enterprise bargaining. Uh, have suggested that we need to strip out um, a number of areas that have nothing to do with the employment relationship between employees and employers. And I think the same principle should apply to um, to private, you know, non-collective agreements as well. Um, and, you know, there should be some limitation on uh, the types of matters that um, you know that, that employers and employees can agree upon in that context, and actually more narrowly define what the employment relationship is. I think that would go a long way. It wouldn't. It wouldn't dictate terms. But don't I don't I have a right to sign a contract that I want? If if I say I'll sign a contract with um, a private organisation that says no, you may not say this specific set of ideas on your social media feed, and we will pay you X dollars. To, to not do so. Don't I have the right to sign that? Yes, and, and we could make it so that you have, um, you know, th- those specific sort of qualifications I think are absolutely fine if you actually define it in a particular way. The problem that we face at the moment in employment law is these vague policies are used as, as shields and swords to do whatever the HR departments of particularly big businesses want to do with them. And that's things like just you should act yourself in good conduct or that sort of stuff. And then they they decide what good conduct is. And and, and worried about the brand and the reputation, you know, because all it needs is to find a few outraged people on Twitter. And that is enough at the moment um, to, you know, to start threatening the brand of whatever. And we've seen this on both sides. We've we've seen this, um, you know, attacking sort of conservative people, We've also seen this, you know, attacking more sort of progressive people as well. Um, and, you know, so th- that's that's something that that's, I think is a positive measure that we could do that actually is targeted at what the problem is. Now, meanwhile, while the Morrison government has been working on a bill for religious freedom, they have already, in an historic move, managed to get through the parliament the tax cuts that they took to the election, tax cuts in three tranches that go through to 2024. This has been seen as a signal 
political success, but now actually gives us the opportunity to reflect on that package, whether it was good, bad, indifferent, or what we should really be talking about when it comes to tax. And to be honest, how much it's torn up the Labor Party, which will be great fun. Um, uh, so the coalition government passed its tax cuts in full. Kurt, I might ask you actually just to take us through very briefly without being very boring about it. Um, nothing personal, Kurt. Um, uh, just its economics. Um, uh, just take us through precisely what those tax cuts are, because they're in they're in three tranches, or in there there are three elements to it. Am I right? Yep, sure. So the first phase which is uh, coming in for, for the last uh, this financial year is an expansion of the, the 32.5% bracket, which was used to be 37000 to 87000 and that's stretching that upper bracket from 87000 to 90000 And that's also, with that first phase, there's also some tax offsets of up to uh, $1,080 for low- and middle-income income earners. And then the second phase, which comes in in 2022 to 2023, uh, is an expansion of the the 19% bracket uh, from 18,000 to 37,000 up to 45,000. So that's increasing that uh, the tax bracket from 37,000 to 45,000, uh, and, and a further expansion of the 32.5% bracket. Um, now moving that 90k upper limit to 120k. So that's that's quite substantial um, in phase two. But then phase three, which has been the controversial one, which is um, being challenged by the Labor Party um, initially was the expansion of um, a tax, well, a creation of a new tax bracket, really, um, which creates a one tax bracket of 30% marginal tax bracket from 45k to $200,000. So that's a, um, a rate reduction for everybody earning from 45000 to 200000 um, down from either 32.5% or 37% down to 30%. And this is creating this, you know, this flat tax, um, you know, it's, it's flattening out the tax system in... Flatter. 20, yeah, well, it's flattening out, yeah, with this with this um, system from 2024. No, but it also means 2024. most earners will experience a flat tax system under that, under that. So most earners for most of their lives, as they're earning uh, above 44, you said, um, uh, and less than 200, which is the experience of most people and most families will experience a flat tax system throughout their life. So, so it won't be because of the interaction with the tax-free uh, threshold and lower uh, tax brackets, it's not strictly a flat tax because the interaction, like as you move up within that bracket, you're still expanding the amount of tax you pay. So it's, um, yeah, it's not quite that you're paying you know 30% of your income you know, no matter where you are in that tax bracket, because of the interactions with the, the lower um, tax brackets and the tax-free threshold. Yeah, it, it certainly yeah. remains complex. But and, and the political economy, which uh, uh, Dr. Berg, I understand you wanted to talk about, is is fascinating because essentially they've uh, we talk about progressive and regressive taxation measures. You know, regressive are those which hit the, the lowest paid. Um, you know, cigarette taxes, you know, might be an example of that because it's correlated... Um, with demographics, but in this case, they've front-end loaded what you might call the progressive improvements. The the low-income tax offset is is actually quite significant for the um, for a lot of Australians. And I understand accountants are doing very well at the moment because everyone's trying to do their <laughs> tax return as, as quickly as possible. They've had a record number, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Six hundred fifty thousand in the first week or something ridiculous. It's um it's quite a lot. Yeah. So to all our friends in the accounting profession, good luck with that. Uh, and then, uh, but part of the package was the later measures, which do speak to those on on higher incomes. Um, and the Labor Party, that was the political economy of it. The Labor Party was trying to cherry pick, saying we'll, we'll have the bit that helps the low income earners and we won't have the bit that effect that is uh, beneficial for the higher income earners. And, uh, but in, eventually they did capitulate. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a long discussion on, in, amongst conservatives and classical liberals and libertarians about that, the existence of that um, low income threshold. So um, there are more and more people who aren't paying anything into the tax system. And that seems to be the direction that we're going, because if we're going to cut taxes, we need to cut taxes to people on the upper brackets because they're the ones who pay most of the money. But you can't just do that. You have to cut lower um, income people's taxes at the same time for political economy reasons. So we keep raising the um, tax-free threshold, which means a larger and larger percentage of the population aren't paying any income tax. Now, I'm not 
I, I'm I'm not as um, uh, bolshy on this as as some are, but I but there is a strong argument I think that you do want everybody to pay some tax um, to you know demonstrate what is the cost of all these services that you're doing. Um, certainly, if you're earning an income. That, that's right. I think I think there's there's two views uh, in the um, in, in the community on this. You know, one is that everyone should feel the burden of tax, and from the first dollar you earn, you should pay something so that you know how, you know, it feels to pay tax, and you feel like you've got a stake in those services. The other view is that's actually incredibly inefficient. Um, is to um, you know collect the tax to pay it back to force people that don't, you know, that, that might earn only a few thousand dollars a year uh, to have to, you know, put in tax returns and all those sorts of things that is actually incredibly inefficient. But, and, but here's the thing. We're talking about a low-income tax offset and uh, my understanding of how it works, remember, again, political economy, the politicians have their own interests in this and what they love to be seen is to be giving something away. They love to take your money and then give it back and they're literally doing this instead of... They're not actually raising the tax uh, threshold, Chris, in this case. So I understand the general argument. What they're actually doing is you collect, you do collect the tax or it's collected <laughs> through the PAYG system. But you hand it back. <laughs> and then you hand it back and claim credit no, but for I mean, it. But, yeah, okay, no, so, no, no, so I want to dwell on that's this. How they, this. That's is how they sell it. They're, the, they're, they're, Josh and ScoMo are out there selling it like they're Santa Claus. And, and also, by the way, this is a stimulus package. So they've got like three three benefits out of this the economy yeah. doesn't necessarily benefit but they benefit but this is and I'll, I'll go further this this is a wonderful illustration of the long-running fiscal scam that all Australian governments have run on us since the 1970s which is that we are constantly getting tax increases because of bracket creep because inflation bumps us into higher tax brackets every single year and then every couple of years the government comes around and says oh it's okay we're going to give you an income tax cut at best at best we manage to keep up with the natural inflation driven bracket creep we never really get a tax cut in fact so adam Crichton, um adam Crichton of the australian has pointed out um some of this the absurdities here in the last couple of weeks um, when they were debating this, when he, he wrote, um, when Parliament resumes next week, as, as um, at the end of last month, it will debate whether to increase income tax or to increase income tax a bit less quickly. That's precisely the stakes that we're talking about here. Um, he's pointed out that the um, mo main benefits from this reform in the third um, uh, tranche of the reform, the third phase, come in in July 2024, and I'm going to quote from him, that is so far off that more than 830,000 Australians will have died <laughs> before they see the benefits well, of yeah, that. Yeah. Um, which, this which, is, this which is, is why there was some funny stuff going on with the name of the bill. And, <laughs> and this, is, this, this has happened um, probably just in the last sort of 10 years or so in Australia. It hasn't really been a thing up until then. It's more of a, an American thing than an Australian thing, but it started to creep in. And I think it, it first started with the Fair Work Act. You know, yep. We call it the, the Fair Work Act rather than the re-regulation of the labour market act. Right? <laughs> and and so um, this, this tax bill was called the Treasury Laws Amendment, in brackets, tax relief so working Australians keep more of their money, right? <laughs> um, which, which is great. Um, you but wouldn't vote against it. You, well, <laughs> no. no, but the Labor Party tried to amend the name. And, and their, um, uh, their amendment was called the Treasury Laws Amendment, tax relief so working Australians keep more of their money but not for a really really long time <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was uh, you know that, that was funny by them although yeah. um, you know so it was a, it's, it's a nice try from the, the the government to you know to sort of engage in this game have a, have a go at it but I, I just find this I, I find this an utter disgrace and um, so little of the media and so little commentary actually picks up this shell game. Every government is playing, every treasury is playing with us and has done so for the last couple of decades. The steady increase of bracket creep and then the gift, the quote gift they give us back with income tax cuts. So how, how should we measure tax cuts then? Well, so, I mean... Uh, I, mm, just, just as an interjection, yeah. the, my recollection is that Fraser did try indexation. Precisely. And then it was abandoned within about two or three years. 
and because uh, they want the money back. Yeah, but <laughs> but it reminds me of your the the point you often make, uh, Chris, which is. Um, it's like, you know, that's 30 years ago. We tried that once. Yeah, no. Off the no, table. no yeah, let's yeah. forget about that. No, you know, it's done. And, and, um, the debate is settled. You yeah, know, yeah. So we had that debate. <laughs> yeah. And this is, I may have told this story on the podcast already, um, probably a couple of times. Um, but, you know, Canada federally tax, uh, um, got rid of bracket creep. So they indexed their tax brackets to inflation or to CPI um, in 2000. But And this, is a, this was a huge success. And this just clears off this entire ridiculous scam that governments are running on us but you know the idea that you would index tax brackets in australia that's that's horrible oh yeah crazy yeah you lunar right that's, you know that's horrifying and it's so inconsistent because you know on on the welfare side of things there are some welfare benefits that are indexed although um the, the topic that's been uh, floated recently is these deeming rates um for uh pensioners um and it's all a bit complex but uh, you know the, the government are uh essentially taking uh, a, a percentage and saying, well, that's how much you would earn on money in the bank and we'll attribute that to your income whether you earned it or not because it's too hard to calculate. And rather than pegging that to the cash rate or a basket of things, they've they've just made up a percentage, which yeah. is... Back a decade ago. And you know, somehow it seems to be impossible to change um, because we can only do one thing at a time and, in this country. And and, and sh- so that, that's another area that surely just index it and and, and fix it. So I'll tell you who actually understands this really well. Um, Bill Kelty, um, uh, former former union boss, had a be, uh, had um, some quotes in the AFR the other day, which arguing that against the views of some of his Labor friends, he, he believes the Morrison government's tax reform package does not go far enough in cutting marginal index rate uh, marginal tax rates, including the top rate, which should be below forty percent rather than nearly 50% in his view, um, in fact, in large part because of the effects of bracket creep and the failure to index our tax rates. Well, this, well said. This, this is really... Um, well said, Bill. Well said, Bill. Yeah, well, Bill really sums up the, the problem with, um, in the Labor Party, which is this divide between people who are horrified at the, um, the, the third phase of the tax cuts, saying that it was going to flatten the tax system, um, destroy our, you know, our wonderful progressive taxation system, and those who you know, see that um, you know, working-class people actually benefit from from phase three of the tax cut. It, it benefits everyone who's earning over $45,000 a year. So it's a really, um, you know, brings to this, this big divide um, between, uh, you know, between people on, on, on the left in, in the Labor Party. So I think this, it's really important that, um, you know, we make a lot of this to, to show that people are being very elitist when they say that, um, you know, we don't care about, you know, just a $1,000, you know, tax tax cut you know that doesn't make any difference well to a lot of people that does make a lot of, of difference and it makes a lot of difference to you know typical labor voters you know who are part of the labor voting base um and the other thing i'd like to to, to touch on is this idea that um you know we're destroying the progressive nature of of our tax system in the actual um the budget papers it shows that um currently the top one percent pay 17 percent of the income tax and the top 20 percent pay 60 percent of the income tax and with the government's plan it actually increases those those amounts slightly so that the rich are actually paying more of the percentage of the income tax so even you, even after all yeah, three stages yes so it's actually um yeah it's actually increasing the amount so the top one percent will actually slightly pay more of the overall percentage than they would have even with without the tax cuts so this going to the point about bracket creep is that bracket creep really does swamp the whole effect of this tax cut and it's not actually even though we are widening and creating a, a big 30 percent tax bracket from forty-five thousand to two hundred thousand, it's not actually going to change those dynamics of you know the rich paying you know the vast majority of income tax but again it's by design because the government wants to raise income taxes every single year it, it does so, and then every once in a while it pretends to compensate for us. Yeah, and but it even they even they sort of even um, the tone is almost bragging about the fact that we're maintaining this this um, dynamic in in the in the budget papers. The, the other point that needs to be made is that Australia's top tax bracket kicks in at two point two times the average earnings, and that is in comparison to uh, the UK and Canada where it's four times. And in the US, where it's eight times, 
So that means so the, the top bracket where you're paying um, a marginal tax rate of 45% um, kicks in at just you know double the, the average earnings. So it, it kicks in at a relatively low um, amount and it's also a relatively high marginal tax bracket. Can we just go back to Bill Kelty um, and, uh, you know, the, the Labor Party's sort of position on this has been a bit all over the place in, um, you know, the, their parliamentary wing have said, oh, we're deeply concerned about phase three of the, the tax cuts. We're, we'll support the first two stages, but we're, we're really concerned about stage three and then yet let it go through anyway. Um, but, I mean... Something that's really just fascinated me about the the acrobatics uh, of politics is, um, on one hand, to say, well, we can't bake in tax cuts uh, in in the future. We, we we just can't have tax cuts, you know, being legislated in in twenty twenty four, and yet we can somehow bake in expenditure. You know, we had the Gillard <laughs> government have you know the the NB, you know, the NBN and the NDIS and those things, and, and regardless about the merits of those programs and, and Gonski and, and what have you, huge expenditure was being committed well in advance of the forward estimates of the budget papers, well in advance, and. Um, when uh, the, the Abbott government and then the, the, the Turnbull government got in uh, and started to revise down some of those hugely inflated uh, estimates of expenditure in the future, they were somehow, somehow called cuts, yes, you know, and it's, it's imaginary expenditure is, is being reduced to a lower imagination as somehow a cut. Um, but at the, on the other hand, they say, oh, no, no, but you absolutely can't do tax cuts in the future. It's just rank hypocrisy, to be honest. Well, yeah. I, sorry, go on. I, well, I just um, uh, indeed, and I, but I also wanted to jump off Kurt's point because there, there's some great numbers in there, and I'm thinking of uh, an old mate of mine, uh, Jake. We were talking about uh, Kelty a few months ago, and he did make the point. He said it is fascinating that uh, it was Kelty, Hawke, and Keating who were the first to ta- tackle the top marginal rate. I think it came down from 60 to 45, and and of course the Medi- Medicare levels uh, levy has crept crept back up again and Abbott put the tax up. But the the Liberal Party in this country has never actually run an argument about mar- top marginal tax rates. As they obviously feel too exposed as being the, you know, the, the party of the rich or whatever it is. And it's only the Labor Party that can actually run an argument about marginal tax rates. And uh, with um, Hawke and Keating and Kelty on board, they did it once. The Liberal Party's never done it. In fact, you know, Abbott went the other way this is actually a disgrace. And, that, and this is why the, the easy way out for the Liberal Party is simply to index the rate. Then they don't have to engage in the politics of decreasing the, the top marginal tax bracket. Yeah, so if... That if, is unfathomably radical. I'm yeah. sorry, Kurt, that's disgraceful. How dare you? <laughs> this is deeply un-Australian. <laughs> that really would be a, uh, a moonshot. You know, the, <laughs> the, the unachievable, impossible can't be done. That is a hell of a segue. Thank you, Chris. Take it away. <laughs> so, uh, this <laughs> just while I compose myself for a second there. Okay, so um, uh, this month is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, specifically in Australia on the 21st of July 1969 at 12:56 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Um, Neil Armstrong got off the um, uh, ship and, and stepped on the moon um i thought it was worth us having a brief run through first of all um just we can relitigate the moon landing was that a good idea <laughs> um, was that worth the price but also i we're, we're sort of in the new age of space exploration in part because of the private sector um involvement in in space and space administration and the um u.s administration is now talking about using going to the moon and then using moon as a base in which we can then go to mars and so forth so so why don't we start with you Aaron? how how should we think about 50 years after the moon landing it's it's easy to be pessimistic that we can't figure out how to get back there again or you know, how, how should we think about it? Well, um, in in reflecting on it, it, it was surprising to me that um, you know the last landing was in the seventies, and that we actually haven't done it again. Um, and so I, I found that to be uh, sort of fascinating. But I, I think the um, uh, the the point that struck uh, struck me about all of this uh, sort of talk about about the moon landing, um, it it reminded me of a, a book. 
um, by Mariana Mazzacuto, who is at the University of Sussex in, in the Sprue uh, sort of innovation uh, camp there. And uh, she wrote a book called The Entrepreneurial State. And, and her thesis really was about you know, this activist, big government innovation policy, you know, government as a big risk taker. And it seemed to me that, um, you know, that the the space project in the US could be read in that similar way in that, you know, the amount of innovation uh, that has um, has been driven, not just um, in in getting to the moon, but in, in all the space technology after that. Um, although, I guess the the counterpoint to that, um, of course, is that you know we should also think of entrepreneurship um, as really as a as a private endeavour. It's not just government as the funder of innovation projects, but it actually requires people to spot those market opportunities. I, I was on the Jet Propulsion Lab website, which is the one of the big NASA labs, um, and uh, it's got a list of twenty things we wouldn't have without space travel which is just insane because they're trying to claim yes. that the moon mission gave us camera phones scratch resistant lenses lenses cat scans landmine removals athletic shoes athletic shoes oh really laptops <laughs> portable computers i mean they they, they make these wild claims right, about right. the benefit but as far as i can tell the real ones are like velcro which is, you know, a good thing. But uh, aluminium foil. Aluminium that was, foil. That was always Saves doing up your shoes, I guess. Yeah. But, um, but and, and that's kind of the thesis of Mazkuda's book is, is um, hey, all these innovations wouldn't have occurred if, unless the government had funded it. And so um, I, yeah, think, no. I think that's a... <laughs> yeah, no. Well, no, but, it, but it's... <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> but I think that's the, that's the interesting argument for me to engage with yeah. in, in, in this space. But isn't, the, isn't that kind of damning that we can't... Um, justify a space exploration mission without trying to say, well, you know, but it sort of gave us Velcro or that sort of, you know, it helped laptops, it computed and, these more. And of course, what's the counterfactual? Yeah, the counterfactual well, is what if you spent the money yeah. inventing Velcro? Well, that's like, the big issue because NASA, um, the budget of NASA is you know, astronomical <laughs> and it's, um, pardon the fun, but, um, and especially like around when they were you know, flying to the moon, that was, you know, taking a, a substantial amount of the federal budget. The question is, what was the opportunity cost and what was the counterfactual? You know, we can't just say that, oh, they developed you know, this technology in this program, therefore that justifies the program. Um, but, it's, but it's sold as this big positive externality of but, like motivation and people seeing the moon landing and being inspired to do all these things. Yeah. But the argument that like uh, only the government could have done this and you know taken on all the risk and uncertainty of flying to the moon, just clearly demonstrates the fact that there is no cost-benefit analysis possible with government um, ah. projects. And I think the thing that separates government projects um, such as this and all government projects is that it's not entrepreneurship. There are no prices they're interacting with. There's no way we can possibly know whether there's value being created. There's no way you can... Um, there's no profit being made, which is an indicator that um, some value is being created, that the cost-benefit analysis has tilted in favour of the benefit. There's no way of evaluating these things. So really, um, yeah, it's true that it might be true that only the government could have, you know, taken on such, you know, reckless um, uncertainty. Um, but that's not an argument in favour of, of travelling to the moon On, or any but of the here, space here program. But here is the thing, my friend. Here is the thing. You, <laughs> you, you have correctly identified exactly what cost-benefit analyses are used for in the public sector. They are used for post-facto rationalisation of things that politicians have already decided they want to do and all the things on that on that lovely website chris was quoting from are post facto rationalizations i think it actually tells you something about human nature that there is this desire like why are we even talking about this again because because it's fun there's something deep within our nature to think about space is cool these impossible things well now it's space but if you look back in time why did why did marco polo go to china why why did columbus Think of the new world. You know, in, in both cases, trade, it was private sector opportunities. Some, you know, or the government of Spain backed some of it. So it was a mixture of private and public entrepreneurship. It's like Burke and Wills. Why did they want to go to the Gulf of Carpentaria? This, it had no scientific merit as an expedition at all. In order to invent. But the public Velcro. of Melbourne was seized. Yeah absolutely seized with how fantastic this expedition was and how important it was and they had this huge party and you know all through history i think there's 
this desire expressed to do something simply because it is impossible and then economists come along afterwards and come up with rationalization but i think that's the big it. part for for trump is that you know he's trying to make america great again and this is going to the moon is such a a symbol of american greatness that you know this is just a, a great political move for trump if we can um, I'm not sure, like the timelines. But NASA wanted to go to Mars, so yeah. well, no, but, so the the plan is to. Um, and there was a very um, influential tweet that Donald Trump put out um, uh, when he was frustrated. As far as we can tell, he was frustrated that NASA kept talking about the moon because the theory is that you'll go to the moon and you'll use that as a launching pad for Mars. I'm not sure whether that's precisely what most engineers would suggest, but he put out this tweet: "For all the money we are spending, NASA should not." be talking about going to the moon we did that 50 years ago they should be focused on the much bigger things we are doing including mars bracket of which the moon is a part comma defense and science so i think i, I think he is trying to t- everybody teased you know mars Everyone. of which the moon is a part ha 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 um i i think people just misread the tweet and they're like oh donald trump's an idiot um but but i think that's that's the whole purpose so but on that though on that i think Think through what actually happened in the politics of going to the moon the first time. That was a policy that survived three separate administrations during a war, a really significant war, um, uh, during a presidential assassination. That was a policy that lasted 10 years. It's very hard to see how you would get a space policy or any of these big government policies holding through multiple administrations over the course of a decade these days. And it's particularly so given the current administrator. Um, so Jim um, Bredenstein is uh, the current administrator uh, of NASA, and he's a former Republican congressman. And he is the first really political appointee to that office. And so um, I, I, th- I think you're right about that, Chris, um, is that it would seem to me... Uh, that and, and particularly, it was a very um, uh, divisive vote in the Senate to get him confirmed in that position. I think it was, you know, forty-nine fifty or something like that, and and so really s- split right down the middle on party lines. And so I think if you have someone as partisan as that in that position, surely he's he's liable to get the flick uh, if uh, you know. Trump is out of the White House. So I, I have a story here. So I have a, a theory about what's happened with American space policy over the last half century since they landed on the moon. And the big problem was that once they landed on the moon, they didn't really know what to do. And NASA was trying to search out for this thing. So NASA Which made... Which is fair enough. There's not much there. No, no, no. <laughs> exactly. Once you've landed on the moon, then, then what are you going to do next? We didn't have the technology to go to Mars or something like that. So they couldn't just double down. The big problem was that they committed to a really terrible program that was just a disaster and held back space policy from a American administration perspective for 40 years and that was the space shuttle. The space shuttle was a highly politicized really white elephant that was deeply unreliable and as it turned out to be dangerous and didn't achieve any of the political goals that it had that that it sort of stacked up on top of each other. They wanted it to be made for civilian use. They wanted it to be made for military use. They wanted it to be reusable. They still wanted to use um, uh, disposable rockets, all this sort of stuff. And that just destroyed American space policy for 40 years. Now we're in a totally different environment because the private sector is suddenly involved. Massive amount of investment, massive amount of investment um, for space tourism, space uh, satellite launches, all that sort of thing. And that's what's saving us now. So the government is now taking a backseat role because the government stuffed it up. The government made a massive catastrophic mistake in committing to a program that was just a disaster. That's my narrative. You have some strong feelings. I've got some really yeah, strong feelings. This is why this I, is why space need, was on the list. And, for and today. we need some. Um, uh, they should have some property rights on the moon. I think you know the law. Yeah, yeah. The, the law. Can't you buy a, a, a bit of title? No. There are websites uh, you, that will give. Yes, you but you can't enforce it. Yeah, yeah, and and a bridge in Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> but I was I was thinking more moon rocks. Just you go get a moon rock, bring it back, cut it up, sell it for jewelry. It'll be self-financed. Yeah. Our books and culture segment <laughs> has Speaking arrived. Speaking of deeply serious points, yeah. That's, that's enough about the moon <laughs> or space or anything. Our books and culture section. Let's elevate the tune a little bit. Dr. Berg, you've been watching a streaming service again. <laughs> exactly. Elevate Just the for tone. a change. So I've um, watched 
the uh, TV show The Terror and read the novel that the, it was based on. The novel is also called The Terror. It's by a um, uh, author called Dan Simmons. It's actually um, the, the the TV oh, show. He's, he's uh, sci-fi. He's a sci-fi yeah, um, and guy. Yeah, and yeah, great. Yeah, so great writer. So it's a fictionalized version of John Franklin's lost expedition to find the Northwest Passage um, uh, in the 19th century. The John Franklin expedition departed in 1848, and it was lost, um, or, or the last people died on that expedition in 18. Sorry, it departed in 1845. It was lost in 1848. It was um, two ships, one of which HMS Erebus and the other one was HMS Terror. They actually called the ship the Terror. Um, uh, the book and the TV series are actually structured around it's sort of a monster story um, uh, and and kind of like a horror novel. But what I, I, I enjoyed the book much more than the um, TV show. The TV show is pretty good, so I do recommend people actually read the book because the horror part of it is not about the monster or about the the thing that's stalking them on this expedition while they've been frozen in um, in their search for the Northwest Passage. It's about just how bad it was to live in that environment and to exist in that environment where um, during winter temperatures go down to negative seventy degrees and just the terror of what happens if you're caught outside without your gloves on or what happens if you touch metal without um, uh, something in between you and your skin. It was just a really, um, uh, really engaging book. The TV show is really good fun. It's not as good as the book, unfortunately. It is of interest, though, to Australians because John Franklin is not just anybody. He was the lieutenant governor of Van Diemen's Land uh, of Tasmania between 1837 and 1843 before returned to um, the United Kingdom. And his wife, Jane Franklin, Lady Jane Franklin, is really one of the um, pivotal figures in... um, in in Australian history, especially Australian women's history. And as I was reading this book, I was like, hold on, Jane Franklin. I've quoted her in things before um, because uh, she gave me some of the evidence about um, the volume of the the number of um, people who read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations um, in the Australian colony. So anyway, it's it's got a little bit of an Australian vibe to it. There is some scenes set in um, Australia, but it's just a really engaging, popular read and um and a pretty good tv series and, I, well. and I think it proves what i was saying before i mean the the search for the northwest passage is in the canadian uh imagination a little bit like the burke and wills expedition yeah australia absolutely. so uh, i think margaret atwood's written uh, i remember reading a short story by her on uh on them being stranded in in that expedition or maybe one of the ones that was sent out look to look for them so again it's this fascination with You've got to push out into the unknown, but when you do, it gets very scary. Yeah. So yeah. It is, Wouldn't it, it be nice to have a slightly quick way to China? Let's go and die finding it. Well, let's just wait 100 years until they invent the jet. <laughs> much, much easier. We could just fly over the Arctic, yeah. Yeah. Aaron Lane, what have you got for us? Uh, so on the weekend, uh, I went uh, and watched yesterday uh, with uh, my wife and uh, my in-laws and uh, it was it was just an enjoyable film. So the um, the, the premise is um, what would happen if the world suddenly forgot that a bunch of things existed, and one of those things was the Beatles, and forgot all their music. And what if you retained the knowledge of the Beatles canon? Uh, and we're able to recreate that. Um, and so it, um, it stars uh, uh, Hamish Patel uh, and Lily James uh, and Ed Sheeran as himself. Um, so uh, some good names there. Not, um, not to put you off it, but yeah. Well, no, you were doing all right until then. It's good he, <laughs> I saw him in Game of Thrones. No, yeah, no, no. no. So he, he, it was great, actually, because he, he, he's a standout because he makes fun of himself. You know, and he sort of laughs at himself, and the and the, the script is written in a way where it just sort of bags him out at every appearance. He's kind of either okay. playing second fiddle or you know is being showed up, and he's not the superstar that he thinks he is. So that's um, I, I sort of enjoyed that that aspect. Um, um, but Hamish Patel um, plays Jack Malik, who you know I I sort of identified with this character because he's sort of this struggling musician that plays guitar at these open mic nights. Uh, you know, this a, is a, this is a lot like your life. Yeah, well, I it, thought you it, were it academic of the no, year. This is, um, you know, this is sort of me, circa, you know, 2006, where, oh. uh, you know, I'm 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 playing at open mic nights at university bars, and <laughs> you 
you know, these sorts of things. And I, I've got a mixture of, you know, sort of cover songs and I'm trying to weave my really? own stuff in there that, um, you know, that, that people might say, oh, wow, that's a, that's a great song. No one ever said that. Um, Not I, just I, a lawyer. And then you thought, Lord. So your 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 uh, song of praise to Friedrich Hayek didn't actually take no, off as a hit. It didn't. <laughs> um, it, it, it didn't get up, unfortunately. And and so anyway, he's sort of struggling along, and then he sort of gets hit by a bus, and at the same time, all the lights go out, and this magical sort of thing changes the changes the world. Um, and he discovers that um, that actually no one remembers who the Beatles are and uh, goes through sort of recreating uh, all these singles and putting them, uh, putting them out as if they're his sort of hit songs and he gets discovered and he becomes this absolute superstar. Um, and so it just reminded me of just, uh, I guess, uh, it, w- it was an easy film to watch uh, and it was very, very well done, I thought. But um, it, it also is just a, a great reminder of just how influential the Beatles were in uh, in the music world um, and and bringing in you know really British uh, influence into the US um, culture uh, as well and and what that kicked off um, you know th- throughout the 60s and 70s and later is there a sort of cultural criticism built in uh, I haven't seen the movie and I'm looking forward to it but is there a cultural criticism because the mu- the music of the Beatles is very different to the popular music of today Look, not really. It was integrated in a way as if you assume that you, you could you could release these songs today. People would be really into Sgt. And, Peppers, and and right, yeah. right. Well, and and so th- th- they they integrated in a way where they kind of make fun of those things. Um, so um, you know, Sergeant Peppers is one was like, oh, that's a really weird title. We need to change the you know the thing and the the, the white albums like oh you can't say that like that's a <laughs> and um ed, ed sheeran so that there he's he's sort of um he's remembering all the lyrics and the and and the the guitar to hey jude and ed sheeran says hey jude yeah look i've just got a bit of feedback on that um what wouldn't it be better if it was hey dude <laughs> you know so there, there, there there is a bit of that sort of you yeah. know trying to make it so it's 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 modern day but um uh, which adds to the, the humour of it, I think. But it's it's not the deep cultural criticism yeah. stuff. It's it's not a deep... Merely entertaining. No, good one. Yeah. <laughs> Kurt. Uh, so I've been reading uh, a series of lectures from uh, William Groen van Prinstera, and I'm not confident with that pronunciation. <laughs> but um, so Groen uh, was a Dutch historian uh, in the 1800s, and he was a, a staunch Dutch Calvinist, and he was writing... Um, here about the revolution uh, in France and really the the catalyst for the revolution um, which he um, puts forward as this revolution doctrine. So he it's really interesting because he sort of outlines uh, what he sees as not causing the revolution. So he's um, quite conservative and, and keen to uh, defend the historic European uh, constitutional law. Uh, and so he's... Um, making the case that it wasn't um, because of, you know, the old abuses that led to the revolution, but it was this, um, what he puts down to, this application of atheism to, to politics. So uh, it's, it's really interesting, and it's interesting from a, um, from a Calvinist perspective also because he's defending the Protestant Reformation against uh, accusations from, from conservative Catholics that it was a reformation that was this um, degradation of the old system that led to, to the, the French Revolution. And I think it's interesting also for uh, the continued you know, application of um, this, you know, the, the ideas, particularly in the French Revolution, you know, the more radical uh, forms of, of liberalism. Um, it has a lot of um, relevance for today, I think, in analysis of how you know, religion relates to, to politics. Um, and the, the reason why... Um, why I was interested in, in, in Groen is that he was, he was very influential on Abraham Kuyper, who was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands uh, in 1900 and, and founded the Anti-Revolutionary Party, um, founded the, the Free University of Amsterdam um, and the newspapers and a you know, massive figure in, in Calvinist thought. Um, and he's very influential today in um, you know, conservative, uh, reformed uh, areas, so um, it's interesting to sort of you know see where his ideas developed and who where the influence came from. And um, yes, this is uh, just a re-publication um, uh, of the English translation. So a lot of the old 
um, Dutch theological writings are being made more widely available in English. Um, and a lot of uh, Abraham Kuyper's uh, writings are as well. So there's a lot of interesting reading to be done there. This has been a big problem for a long time, that there's so much Dutch liberal and conservative thought that is unavailable to um, the English-speaking world. Um, and it sort of forces us into believing that a lot of liberal and conservative ideas are English ideas or they only involve the Scottish Enlightenment when there's this huge liberal tradition in um, the Netherlands through the Golden Age, um, uh, through the Revolutionary Period, that that is should be more influential on our thinking. Than yeah, it and it's interesting because it seems to go one way. So the Dutch read the English. Yeah, yeah. Well, English is the lingua yeah, franca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of... So like um, Groen is very influenced by Edmund Burke, um, clearly uh, in in this book. But it's interesting that you know the influence is coming from one way and then there's a lot of development happening uh, in the Netherlands uh, in Dutch thought that then doesn't get come back into yeah. the English-speaking world. But and from... Like I read a lot of uh, theology, and it's interesting that a lot of like this Dutch theology that's now coming, um, you know, being available in English is actually answering a lot of the the debates that have been going on for a hundred years in English, but um, we just you know, hasn't had you know the widespread um, you know thought coming from from Dutch. There is an element in which the early modern liberals were much more deeply integrated between the Dutch and the English. John Locke spent a lot of time there and people would flee to Amsterdam. As a refugee, yes. As a refugee. People would flee to Amsterdam and they would write their treatises and then come home and publish them secretly and that sort of thing. But it, but that obviously died out during, say, the 19th century, that deep intellectual integration between the, the Dutch-speaking world and the English. Well, I didn't know any of that. I would. I, I, this I is can, very important. I, I, I can actually, this is what we intended for it to be like. It is, and yeah. maybe there's a follow-up IPA review article from from Kurt on the uh, the Calvinist stroke Dutch uh, tradition of enlightenment. No, looking forward to that one. Um, but fascinating from a bloke I'd never heard of. So all good. Thank you, Kurt. Um, mine, as I mentioned before, um, uh, the great Clive James. Uh, readers will be familiar with uh, poet, uh, television star, and uh, most most importantly, a contributor to the IPA's Climate Change the Facts 2017, <laughs> uh, wrote a great chapter on... Uh, on His greatest al- claim to fame. Alarmism, <laughs> yes, that's right, he's, he's proudest of, um, on media alarmism about climate change. It is available on our website. I commend those 5,000 words to anyone. But the, the second most important thing he's done, uh, he, he does call it like the capstone of, of his life's work almost. Um, he's always been interested in Italy and Italian and he taught himself Italian. And he's now translated from medieval Italian, Dante's um, Divine Comedy, all, all three books uh, about, the, about hell, purgatory and paradise. And I've, I've read the first one and um, this is a famous book, as I said, you know, it d- describes the, the circles of hell, which is now sort of part of our, our language and uh, who we condemn to the circles of hell um, you know, and, and, and this is what Israel Folau was talking about. But in fact, Dante's is very gentle, in fact, in some of these things. Like in the first circle of hell, are all those people who whose only crime was to have not been alive after uh, Jesus was born. So all, all the great Greek uh, ethicists are only in the first circle of hell and not being punished very much. <laughs> and as as you go deeper... Uh, he puts a lot of his enemies in hell. Uh, you know, the punishments do get more and uh, worse and worse. And um, and right down the bottom, it's mainly sort of liars and fraudsters. And um, economists listening might be interested to know that right down in the eighth circle of hell is a guy who debased the currency of Florence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. That's yeah. where they belong. He says... Uh, so Got that, the RBA. That's right. He was... Um, what does he say? He was a loot or would have been if cut short at the groin from that part where a man is forked. Oh. Yes, and he oh. and so Dante talks to him and and he said, Our Florin, pride of Florence, was a sham, minted by me. Three carrots of hardware to drain its worth. So, this is one of the pleasures about being authors. You can just take revenge on whoever you want. You can, absolutely. You can write whatever you want in your books. Yeah, so I've always loved the idea of Dante's Inferno. But Would that be hate speech today, though? <laughs> absolutely. As I say, there's, absolutely. A, there's a few other people in there. and um, uh, But uh, this is actually a, a, com- 
a translation for the ages. I've, I've tried to read this book and I can only read it in translation and most of them are impossible with all this mock classical language, but Clive James is Australian. <laughs> it sounds like Clive James talking. Is it written in Australian? Uh, no, no. Is, is, it, it, is it like one of those Tim Winton novels where he oh. sort of... No, no, no. no. <laughs> but, but it's his voice. And, and, and so it still has rhyme. Imagine you're on a beach. <laughs> but it has rhyme the schemes. The is coming up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we held our breath and drowned. Whatever. Thank you, Tim Winton, the most boring writer on earth. But I, I'll do that another day. Um, I'll have to, does that mean I have to read one of his books yeah, so, yeah. I, so I can do a it's, culture pick? This, this counts as a contract. But. Yep. So anyway, I commend to listeners Clive James... Translation of Dante's Inferno. That brings to the end of the books and culture segment and indeed our Looking Forward podcast for the day. I'd like to very much thank my fellow panellists, Scott, Aaron Lane, Kurt Wallace, and of course our producer, James Bolt. We will be back with more Looking Forward next week.